Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Melissa Grayboys, assistant professor of history in the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. Grayboys' interests include African history, the history of science, modern East Africa, and global health. Her book, The Experiment Must Continue, Medical Research and Ethics in East Africa, 1940 to 2014, was published in 2015. Grayboys was awarded a 2018-19 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellowship for her project, A Century of Failures, History, Ethics, and Malaria in Zanzibar, 1900 to 2016. Thanks, Melissa, for coming on the show. Thank you for inviting me. Tell us about the path that led to your interest in Africa and global public health. How did you wind up studying that? Very mistakenly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I came from a family that I'm first generation college student and my parents didn't have passports, still don't have passports, <laughs> had not traveled internationally. Um, and I went to a community college for my first year because of financial issues. And after that, I transferred to UC Davis and I thought I was gonna be, I think community studies or development, kind of a community activist was mm -hmm. my intention. And as a transfer student, I had very low priority to get into my classes and every class I wanted was full <laughs> my first quarter. And so I looked around and I thought, well, what am I interested in that I would never take? And I thought, African history, that sounds amazing. And I took two African history classes my first quarter with Cynthia Brantley, who was the main historian at Davis, and I loved it. And she really inspired me and it made me realize as somebody who loves to write, someone who likes to think through sources and methods, I didn't call them that at that point as undergrad, but I realized that I loved what she was teaching me. And from that point on, I said, heck with my old major, I'm gonna be an African <laughs> studies major and this is gonna be my advisor. And she helped me do undergraduate research in Nigeria. I went and worked in East Africa right after I graduated and I just, launched on this path that I couldn't have anticipated six months after graduating high school and that my family was really, really kind of perplexed and blown away by. <laughs> <laughs> so I tell my students here that it's really important to think about what are you interested in and what might you not take a class in because sometimes those really launch you on your career or help you discover parts of yourself that if I had been really logical and planned and got into those classes, I wouldn't probably wouldn't be a professor today dealing with African history. And that's strange to think about. So you just explained the African history piece. What about the global health piece? Yeah, so the global health piece, I had worked for Planned Parenthood when I was in college. So I had domestic experience as a health educator here in the United States. I knew a little bit about health concerns globally, but I was really interested in learning. Um, and when I first went to East Africa, I was working in Malawi and volunteering, and it was with a public health organization. And then I went back and I worked for a global health organization called Population Services International in Tanzania and I helped run a program there and I hated it. And I thought all I could think was how many problems there were with their approach and I didn't know an alternative and I didn't know anything better, but I knew I didn't like how local people were not involved in the programming and not involved through the logic and the thinking of what was right and what we should do for global health. And that made me think, I need to go back and get some professional training so I can engage in this conversation in a more productive way. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, your book, uh, The Experiment Must Continue, uh, obviously ex reflects these kinds of interests and concerns. The book's been widely reviewed and is being taught at a variety of educational institutions. First, tell us about that title. What, 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 what does it mean, The Experiment Must Continue? 
So it came from one of the quotes of one of the British researchers that was based and running one of the largest um, human experimentation projects in East Africa that touched over 100,000 East Africans between about 1940 and 1955, taking blood samples, stool samples, skin samples sometimes, um, maternity histories, very physical exams, and very really being touched by biomedicine in the, the form of um, British male colonial researchers. And in the midst of one of these experiments that Africans were really pushing back about what were appropriate norms and they were refusing to participate by um, fleeing from the villages and sometimes even in one case setting a research compound on fire as a way of telling researchers that they didn't like what was going on. And this man was very adamant and he said, the experiment has to continue. And I think it really captures the mixed logic and, and the tensions of doing medical research, which is there can be something very coercive and we have to be very attentive to the power dynamics. And in a colonial setting, those power dynamics are obvious, Who's, who has more control? On the other hand, there's something very beneficial that can come out of medical research. And he was also speaking in some ways from the goodness of his heart or thinking about the purity of research, which is it can improve people's lives. And some of the things they were researching about tropical diseases held the potential to really address health concerns that a lot of East Africans suffered from at that point. So the experiment must continue captures both of that. Sometimes we need to cancel the experiment. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we have to press through, but in a different way than how we've done it in the past. And that's a way of putting the kind of I don't, I don't think I want to say polemical thrust of your book, but it's this different way that you really want to help uh, researchers understand. Say a little bit about it. Yeah, so one of the ways that uh, when writing the book and I thought about the audience, I really wanted it to be accessible to people who do medical research and do global health research today. And I wanted them to read this book and think, this is why the history of the place I work in matters. And this is why how people understand their bodies and that they might not have the same conception of how blood flows through the body or that the heart pumps blood or that a drop of blood isn't dangerous or risky. That understanding those historical and anthropological components is really important to doing good research. And you can think that research is really good and important and can aid people locally, but if you haven't respected those local norms and understanded the historical interactions that have come before, the potentials for missteps and confusions and misunderstandings and, and failed projects and wasted money and time is really high. Mm -hmm. So one of the issues that comes up again and again in your book is this concern with the disconnection between how Western medical researchers conceived of their work mm -hmm. and how the East Africans they studied conceived of it. So say a little bit about that. So one of the things I discovered um, doing research in Swahili, and I did a lot of interviews in Swahili, um, was that there's no good word for medical research in Swahili that's widely understood and recognized. And that definitely is a historical component when we go back and look at the historical linguistics of the area, working with old dictionaries and things. But it it's also persists into the present, that for fairly well-educated people who are not involved in biomedicine, they're not doctors, they're not nurses, how you describe medical research seems a lot like treatment. Mm -hmm. And we know that here in the United States, globally, the idea of therapeutic misconception, that I don't understand research isn't done to benefit me, and that there's risks associated with it, that's really running rampant in East Africa, and that calls into question our overall commitment to respect autonomy of an individual, in, individual, and the idea that consent has to be informed, understanding, and voluntary. A person can't give that if they don't fully know the risks because they think it's treatment rather than research. And part of this is a kind of linguistic problem, mm -hmm. right? These researchers 
don't have Swahili. Yeah. They have an interlocutor who's trying to translate for them. They, there's no word that's going to communicate this. There's in the not. Language. There's a way that there's a variety of ways you can talk around it and you describe it. It's treatment that hasn't been proven. You can talk about it in the subjunctive form or the subjective form that it may do this or it may do that or we're investigating or we're trying to discover. But therapeutic misconception is really deeply rooted, not just in East Africa, but even amongst well-educated Americans that we share the same language. We share a biomedical conception of the body. Um, and getting around that is not, is not easy. So, and there's also incentives for our interlocutors. So our African middlemen may be paid by the, each person they recruit. They mm -hmm. may have a vested interest mm -hmm. in not telling people about the risks of research and instead describing it as therapy. And that was one of the things I witnessed when observing in the field how people did recruitment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Interesting. So, you know, one of the ways of putting the, one of the interests of the book is to say, you want to help people understand the complexities of the ethics of medical research, in particular the ethics of medical research in places that are, it, cultures that are f unfamiliar to Westerners or distant from Westerners. Why is medical ethics such an important thing? Why is that so crucial? Why do we need to do that right? Well, one, I think we're talking about the body. <laughs> so some of the ethical questions that could be theoretical in other ways, what are our opinions about this, where we may differ, may not have the tactile nature of it, the, the embodiment issue of you're invading my body with a needle or with a drug or you're extracting something from me that may have more value to me locally than in a biomedical system or more risk associated with it. But I think what it really does is when we don't recognize that there are ethical, different ethical systems at work and that we need to respect and, and modify and be malleable when we're working in different places is that we create a culture and a, and a history of problematic interactions mm -hmm. and that that limits our ability in the future to do good work and whether that's good work around global health interventions that are pure public health interventions, clean water interventions, or whether they're more fraught enterprises like vaccination campaigns. We only have so much goodwill <laughs> and we have to build that up and not burn through it. And when we say, when we act like these people have never interacted with researchers before, and of course they would love to have us here because the intervention we're bringing is fabulous. We discount uh, essentially a century of really problematic contact. Yeah, it's interesting how uh, um, powerfully you demonstrate the kind of historical amnesia of these medical research, contemporary medical mm -hmm. researchers, as if they they have no interest in in previous interventions and in the mistakes that were made previously. It's a curious kind of hubris, isn't it? It is, and I, I feel it, it's hard to figure out sometimes because mm -hmm. on the one hand, I think it's science in general thinking about itself as ahistorical and apolitical and that that's something that continues into the present. Um, I did a series of interviews this summer on my new project related to the history of malaria eradication failures in Zanzibar. And this historical amnesia is exactly what I found. I did a series of interviews with um, researchers that are running eradication campaigns in Zanzibar right now with funding from the Gates Foundation and the CDC. And I asked them, I said, do you remember that we did this in the 19, late 1960s and it failed and there was a rebound to malaria and people died because of this? And they, no one knew what I was talking about. And when I could remind them about it or tell them about it, they were just very dismissive and they said, 
that that was in the past. Those were those days. We've figured things out today. And I think it's this this perception that we have a linear progression mm -hmm. in science, that we're always moving forward, we're never moving back, we're never repeating mistakes. Whereas as a historian, I say, wow, we're actually repeating a lot of the same mistakes and ethically, we're asking a lot of the same questions that we haven't found satisfying answers to yet. So you've just sort of made the link that to the, my next question, which is you've spoken about the importance to, for medical research to, researchers to, to think about the complexities of the ethical problems that their research presents. But you're a historian and you're also interested in the ethical problems that historical research mm -hmm. presents. So say a little bit about that. Yeah, I was really struck. I mean, I've gone through the IRB process <laughs> multiple times because I'm doing research and interviews with human subjects. Um, and out in the field doing interviews with people in both English and Swahili and sometimes a third language where I would work with a translator through Swahili, making people understand, one, that I was doing research, that I was a researcher in the same way that medical researchers were, same word, but I was doing something different, that I was interested in their memories and their stories and their narratives and their impressions about things. I thought that I was very clear and I had worked really hard on a clear consent form and I had back translated and done it four different times and I was a pretty advanced Swahili speaker. And when I got to the field and did it the first time, I would finish an interview and I'd think, yeah, that was good, I did a good job. And then the lady would go, so um, can you treat my cough now? And I would say, I, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm just a student and I'm not, I'm not. and she goes, but you're a doctor. You're, you're a researcher and you're asking me all these questions about hospitals, so clearly, she, do you have pills for me? It's like, oh my God, this clearly, we've missed something in the translation and I have not done a good job here in explaining it. So I think that as social science researchers, being really aware of where people start and their understandings, those power dynamics and me coming in as a foreigner, but also what do they understand and the words that we're using to really describe it is hard. So you've started to say a little bit about the research that you've undertook for the project. Tell us a little bit more about the kinds of research that you did and the kinds of research ch challenges that you confronted as you were researching the book. So I thought I did a, over a year of field work in East Africa and working in Kenya and Tanzania and I worked in over a dozen different locations trying to track down materials and that was doing oral interviews with people and also looking for archival materials in unusual places outside mm -hmm. of the National Archives. Mm -hmm. um, a quick trip to the National Archives in Kenya and Tanzania, there's a lot of materials there but they've also been used by a lot of scholars. They're in poor, it's not, they're not always well organized, so it can be hard to find things, but they're really heavy on colonial records. Um, and I wanted to try to recreate and tell a story much more about the participant and subject's perspective of why were these things happening? How did people understand them? What are the narratives, sometimes rumors, that circulated around these um, research campaigns? And I thought the best way to do that was to actually go to the places where large campaigns had happened or where research stations had formerly been placed, colonial research stations, and work there. And what I found was thousands of pages of materials that had never been transferred to the National Archives that very few, if any other scholars, had either worked with before. And that plus the, the interviews that I did with people, I felt like gave me a very unique perspective and a way to recreate a subject's perspective of what these local ethics and these medical research encounters actually felt like. So I think people would think, well, the job of a historian is to find out what actually happened. And you, you start your book with a wonderful um, story where you say, in 1950, or maybe it was 1960, or maybe it was 1970, 
this thing might have happened and it sort of might have been like this or it might have been like that or it might have been like that. So you're, you're doing this research with all these different people because you're interested in their subjective responses. Mm -hmm. And these stories are related, clearly, mm -hmm. but they're not identical. Mm -mm. There's in incongruities, there's incommensurabilities. So how do you, as a historian, how do you handle that kind of, you know, I don't want to say unreliability of, yeah. the, of your interlocutors, but wh how, do you, how do you deal with that? Um, I like it. <laughs> I like it. It makes my students really uncomfortable and I like to share that data with them in its raw form and talk about it in my classes because I think this gets to the really interesting part of being a historian which is I think about triangulation of sources. So why would I privilege colonial sources because they're typed and written and assume that those incongruities and inconsistencies are not there? Mm -hmm. They are, but they've probably been edited out in multiple drafts and versions that I may or may not be privy to seeing in the archive. When I'm able to talk to a variety of people and they're all talking about a same set of issues and themes, but they're slightly different to maybe it's 10 years off, maybe it's a slightly different town, maybe somebody died, maybe someone got injured. Those kinds of stories to me capture what it is over the long term, the kind of residual buildup of interactions that we've been having for a century, but really for the last half century that people are still talking about and thinking about, even if they're not referencing that event specifically. So I like that gray space because I think it really helps us one call into question the clean narratives that colonial archival materials can present us, which are really not that clean. And two, I think it helps reintegrate that subject perspective and the the confusion and sometimes the the the, the frightening nature of what these interactions felt like, which was it was disorganized, it was confusing. People showed up one day and they took blood and they left the next day. They showed up one time and they took skin samples and then they came back with pills and you didn't know if it was related. So I really liked in my interviews sometimes talking to people before I had even gone through the archival materials because I think it framed my own thinking about how did this feel as, a, as somebody on the ground trying to make sense of it, even 40 years later, people couldn't explain, did the little girl who got the injection at my school die because something was wrong with her? Did she get it, it die because it was poison, because the injection was given wrong? Where did she go afterwards? Did they steal her body? That all of these kind of tales and rumors that circulate around it, what do they really embody about a problematic relationship over time? So you've, you've already spoken about how and I think you've just said it again in another way, your desire for medical researchers to be able to read this book and take seriously the kinds of lessons that it offers them, in particular about the agency of the subjects. And I mean, you, t you talk in the, in the preface about um, medical researchers um, characterizing African people as um, patho pathological museums, mm -hmm. as if they were a museum, mm -hmm. and this objectification of human beings as if they were body parts or tissue or something. Mm -hmm. um, you also have just spoken about that you, you want your students to understand these complexities, so you share them with them. Your commitment to writing academic writing for an audience of undergraduates or uh, medical researchers Say a little bit more about the ethics of that commitment for you. 
Yeah, so one of the things I knew when I was writing, turning my dissertation into the book and expanding it was that I thought a lot about who I wanted to read my book and who would make me most happiest. <laughs> and where would I feel like the people who committed time to me in East Africa would feel like it was most valuable. And my students were one of those because I felt like so few of my students have real exposure to the African continent. This was an important issue that I wanted these stories and these voices to come through. So I wanted to make sure I could teach with it. And I taught through multiple drafts of the book here in the Honors College and teaching classes in the College of Arts and Science. But the second group I thought was medical researchers and global health researchers. And that's kind of expanded into social science researchers mm -hmm. because I've gotten a lot of emails and phone calls from people who run research groups for social scientists. And they say, before we send our graduate students to the field, they're reading your book now and they're thinking about this. And that makes me so happy to think that I can have a little bit of a toehold to say, this is why history matters. And you might think that it's ahistorical and your project is so concrete and it's very minor and there's a very low risk and it could be all those things, but there's still a need to think through the history of it. And I think that's really important for the ethics of is the book activism in some way? And I, I'd like to think it is because there are conditions that need to be changed with how medical research is being done and that's not a criticism of specific researchers who I think have great intentions and most of the projects going on are really appropriate to be done in East Africa. But the manner in which they're being done, is it always the best? N not always. I, I just want to uh, underline the importance of, of your the argument you've just made about why history matters. Uh -huh. History matters. Oh, I agree. <laughs> yeah. No, no, I'm, it's, it's, a, it's a point that bears repeating many times because the idea that, well, I don't care, it, it's not in the present, it doesn't matter to us. And this, I think, is a problem that you confront in students today. Mm -hmm. They don't just, not history, I don't I need to study the past, I need to study the present. And your book makes a very eloquent and persuasive argument for how much history always matters. Mm -hmm. Um, so you're also co-editing a volume of essays on how people have fun, enjoy leisure, and express creativity in Africa. Why is that a project that's important to do? Oh, this is so much lighter. Yeah. <laughs> um, it also comes out of our teaching experience. So it comes out of this kind of dual commitment about what do I teach with and what are the accessible texts that are written in a way that undergraduate students who don't have experience with Africa can find a toehold into the continent and potentially be exposed to a lot of different fields, whether it's women and gender studies or sociology or ethnomusicology or folklore, that all of those things are embodied in this book. So here at the university, we teach an intro to African studies class. And I taught it a few years ago and I struggled to find a textbook. And I adopted one for a year and three quarters of the book was about war, famine, corruption, and I was asked to write a review of a new textbook that same year and I read it and it was very similar themes and I, I felt dissatisfied. Not to say that those things aren't true and real and they are, but those are also the stereotypes that most students come to the table with mm -hmm. and I felt like we needed to challenge those in some really concrete ways. So by focusing on everyday life and the pleasure and the leisure that's Im embedded in that, we can ask students to think a little bit more carefully about how people are having fun on a continent that often gets portrayed in the American media as just one of misery and poverty and famine. Tell us who your collaborators on that edited collection are. So I have three excellent UO collaborators, and this is a project really born out of 
the richness of our African Studies faculty on the UO campus. And Lisa Gilman, who was formerly a professor of English and the director of our folklore program, she's she's no longer here, but she was a big part of this. Um, Habib Adrisu, who is part of uh, the School of Music and Dance and who is a performer also contributed. And then Kimmy Balagoon, who's a joint appointment between sociology and women and gender studies. And each of us work on different parts of the continent, and I'm a historian of East Africa. We each work on dis different parts of the continent. We have different disciplines. And for the volume, we each wrote about our different disciplinary perspectives of how do we study leisure in the everyday, and what about the really rich 28 chapters that we got from contributors really spoke to us in terms of methods and sources. And we had 28 contributors from around the globe, including a lot from the African continent. Do you know when that book is coming out? It's under review at Ohio University Press right now. So we're hoping next, probably next fall is my and, guess. And the hope is that you, your dream would be that it would be adopted in, in classrooms. Absolutely. Yeah. So we plan to teach with it here at the university in our Intro to African Studies classes. And we collaborated and worked a lot with people who teach Intro to African Studies courses, folklore classes, sociology courses, women and gender studies courses that what kind of book, how does this work? How does it hold together um, and really present some diverse aspects, glimpses, snapshots of the African continent? So you've mentioned the, um, the African Studies program at UofO a couple of times. You participate, obviously, in that program. You served as the assistant director. Tell us about that program and why it's an important program for the University of Oregon and for its students. Yeah, so we have an African Studies program here on campus that gives uh, awards minors to undergraduates and also has a graduate specialization attached to it. And we have a really vibrant set of faculty members and a really vibrant language program here that in number of faculty members and the disciplines we cross really rivals some of the top African Studies programs in the United States, which is remarkable because we're flying under the radar in terms of the work that we're doing Doing and the productivity of our faculty. So one of the important things about the program is the amount of intellectual community and collaboration. This edited book volume would not have happened if I was at a different institution or I didn't have these particular collaborators here. Um, I have another special issue project working with Daphne Gallagher in anthropology, and it's the same project. We're working with 12 people across the state of Oregon, and the UO is the hub for that. And people see us in the Pacific Northwest increasingly as a site of academic excellence and intellectual excellence around African studies. For our students, this allows us to offer a huge variety of courses related to African studies. We have first, second, and third year Swahili here, which is unheard of that we would offer that because some of our top universities try to farm it out on the internet or don't even have private tutors for it. So we offer our students a lot of internship opportunities, a lot of classes, um, and then all of our personal connections as faculty members that we work with students and go, you want to do research in Uganda? OK, I know a project that's working there. You're interested in South Africa. There's a great faculty member, Lindsey Braun, who works in this area. You should go talk to him. Mm -hmm. So the richness that we have, I think, is built into our numbers. And the area studies component, I think, really builds also on our increasing awareness around black studies on campus and how African studies and black studies really have a lot in common when we think about what are the intellectual kind of roots of those fields and what are we trying to provide our students with. So we just have a couple of minutes left. So I, I guess what I'm going to ask you about here is um, the study abroad program mm -hmm. that you organize, you co-organize for UO students in Zanzibar, Tanzania. 
Tell us about that program. So I co-organize it with Mokaya Bosire, who is our instructor in Swahili here at the university. Um, it's an eight-week program. Students are living with Zanzibari families. They do a full year of Swahili in eight weeks, so they're there four hours a day at the State University of Zanzibar, who is a great partner. And then in the afternoons, two afternoons a week, they do a Swahili history and culture class with taught by either Mokaya or myself. And we really are committed to language, cultural um, awareness, and the historical components of what's going on in Zanzibar and in East Africa in general. So what's important about Zanzibar? What's interesting about Zanzibar? Oh, it's a crossroad. It's an entrepot. It's a melting pot for kind of the Swahili coast. So it really challenges students to think about the Indian Ocean world, the Indian Ocean as a point of connection and contact between India, the Middle East, Oman, the entire coast and horn of Africa. So it challenges students to really think about is Africa as distinct and separate as they might think it is. Well, Melissa, it's been a delight talking to you about your book, about your forthcoming projects, about uh, the programs that you run. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've been speaking with Melissa Grayboys, Assistant Professor of History in the Clark Honors College at the University of Oregon. Her book, The Experiment Must Continue, Medical Research and Ethics in East Africa, 1940 to 2014, was published in 2015. Gray Boys was also awarded a 2018-19 Oregon Humanities Center Faculty Research Fellowship for her project, A Century of Failures, History, Ethics, and Malaria in Zanzibar, 1900 to 2016. Thanks so much for watching.